All right, welcome to On The Mic. I'm Jake Killeen and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Rob Cheney. Rob is a golf coach that's coaching out of golf tech in Singapore. He has recently made the Golf Digest Best International Golf Teacher List of 2020. Um, and he uses a controversial, somewhat controversial uh, method to teach his students called Stack and Tilt. So I'm excited to speak to him regarding this and maybe dispel some myths around uh, the teaching and method of Stack and Tilt. Mate, well, I appreciate you being on with me today. I really appreciate your time. Um, That's it's fine, mate. It's good. It's, you know, as much as anything, I like talking golf and it's nice to have a distraction at the moment from the, you know, the monotony of getting up going for a run, coming home, looking at my emails. Yeah, that's <laughs> keep, right. Keep me off social media. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk, obviously, uh, stack and tilt with you. Um, yes. Because I've been a coach for um, a while now and stack and tilt's been, you know, there in the background for me, uh, being from Australia for a while. But I was never really, um, you know, into it in terms of finding out the information until we met each other, obviously, last year. And from there, I got a little bit more of an understanding through yourself and Andy at the seminar. And I thought yep. it was really interesting. And I wanted to talk to you about that today. So uh, talk us a little bit about how you got into Stack and Tilt and where you first found it. Sure. Yeah. Um, my story was, uh, first and foremost, that I was kind of didn't really understand it at all. And, and in the very, very beginning, what I'd heard of it, I was pretty negative about to be to be honest, which I find quite funny all these years later. Um, but really my introduction to it was through a, a guy called James Ridyard, who you may know or may know of. James is now sort of a, a tour coach working primarily on short game, works with some of the best players in the world. But James at the time was working for Trackman. He was one of the first employees of Trackman and he was um, like a representative for them through Europe and he was, uh, sort of selling the unit, going around doing some educational stuff. And it was just by coincidence, really, that we happened to live close together geographically in Bedford. Or I was working at a driving range in Bedfordshire in the UK. James lived very close. And there was a few occasions when he came to the driving range and just practiced really by himself. And I saw he had the track man. And it was at a time when Twitter was just starting to kind of take off. And at that time, James was on there as a, as a handle called Golf Swing Rebel. Um, and he'd go on there under a kind of pseudonym and, and post interesting things and, and you know, maybe uh, stir the pot a little bit with a few kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, suggestions and, and arguments, if you like, online. Anyway, I got to know James. And, and at that time, James was sort of the first uh, person to bring Andy and Mike from Stack and Tilt to the UK. So he was really one of the first authorised instructors. There was a handful of other guys involved early at the time, people like Sam Quirk and... Um, there were some other guys across Europe, Javier and Nigard and, and a few other names. And I'd really not heard of anything really other than maybe the negative stuff. And James was good enough to sort of help me out really. We just spent an hour or two in my teaching room one day at the driving range. And he showed me some of the basic concepts. And from, from that day almost, I remember thinking this is something I need to learn more about because of the simplicity of the fundamentals, really. It was the, it was the breaking down of the, the basic fundamental skills that golfers need to learn, which made so much sense to me as a teacher where you struggle to help people maybe over a period of four, five, six lessons. This made so much sense that I had to find out more. 
and and the fundamentals you talk about are the three aren't they the you know we talk about normally uh, grip stance posture all those things that stack until simplified even more into three different categories and Correct. And, yeah. and and talk on talk on those three categories well the biggest difference between the stack and tilt fundamentals and the and golf's more traditional fundamentals is that stack and tilt fundamentals are dynamic they talk of something that you have to do through motion um, but whereas the static fundamentals like grip, posture, ball position are exactly that. They're static and they're variable. I mean, if you studied the game for any length of time, you don't even have to study the game. If you just look at the PGA Tour, you notice some people aim to the left, some people aim to the right, different grips. You know, there's a lot of variables. And the idea maybe that you teach or at least, you know, my education in terms of teaching was through the British PGA. and the idea that you start with this set of core fundamentals where you teach everyone to have a good grip, good posture, good stance, et cetera, et cetera, didn't necessarily add up once you understood what really connected great players and it was their ability to first and foremost control that low point. So once I heard that and once I sort of realized that, I thought to myself, that's, you know, that's a massive departure from what I probably teach people and it makes so much sense why would you not focus on that piece first and mm. you don't have to have a perfect grip whatever a perfect grip is to control the low point mm -hmm. um, so it just changed my my focus really completely in terms of how you go about helping somebody and the results that you can have with a student I found very quickly were, were much faster than maybe traditional coaching or my my traditional coaching was so you talk of low point you're talking about the club hitting the ground at a particular point um is that what yeah. you mean by low point right yeah so the first fundamental would be control the low point or yeah really control that point on the ground where the club makes contact with the ground which for an iron shot most of us would understand you're supposed to be after you've made contact with the ball <laughs> so <Perfect. laughs> yeah, the poorest players the poorest players are hitting the ground before the ball mm -hmm players are not hitting the ground at all with an iron shot um, so teaching somebody how to do that and noticing that that feature if you like that commonality exists whether it's Jordan Spieth whether it's Jim Furyk whether it's Tiger Woods whether it's you know it doesn't matter which golfer you want to pick good golfers do that because that's fundamental to ball striking and ball striking is fundamental to number one hitting the ball far and number two hitting the ball with some degree of control in terms of distance which is another skill which you need to shoot low scores um so yeah low point control means hitting the ground in a similar spot and of course when it comes to the driver you're not hitting the ground but controlling the bottom of that arc is still important mm. okay the second one would be curvature so controlling the curve of the ball so the way that they'd list it would be contact first they'd, number two would be power mm -hmm. and the description of power is twofold number one you need to hit the ball far enough to shorten the golf course. So for example, if you just took the first fundamental and taught someone to chip the ball, put the weight on their front foot, maybe put their hand slightly ahead of the ball, maybe, and then hit down on it slightly and, and make good contact. Most people can do that with a chip shot. Um, but you couldn't play golf like that because if you only chip the ball 20 meters, you can't shorten the golf course without it taking you 15 shots to reach the green. So mm -hmm. you have to control the low point, but while doing so, you have to make, you have to create enough power to shorten the golf course. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really the first take on power. 
And, and the second take on power is enough power to play the course. So depending on a golfer's ability, their handicap, their strength, the tees they play off, golfers need to hit the ball different distances. A PGA Tour player needs to hit the ball further than a 20 handicapper. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have to hit the ball as far as you possibly can. You have to hit the ball far enough. And yep. then the third one, the third one would be curvature or controlling the dispersion left and right. So having some degree of ability to keep the ball within a, a cone, shot cone that's manageable, really. Yeah, and when I heard these fundamentals, I was a bit like you. I was like, "Wow, that really is um, to the core of what what we need to be starting with 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 our students." And with, and if you're wanting to play the game. That's exactly where you need to start. So as soon as I heard those, I was sort of, I was in, like I was, okay, let's hear some more about this. So that's the first thing that triggered me. And I was really impressed with that. And um, basically if, if someone was listening at home to us now, how would you define it or how would you describe stack until in just in a, in a sentence or two, just so they can get a grip of what it is. It's a system for playing golf. It's a system for playing, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> it's a system for playing and teaching golf, actually. Um, and it's really built around a description, a three-dimensional description of the swing. They're explaining how the body would move in order to achieve these particular fundamentals. But it's a system that has multiple answers to the, the, the infinite number of questions a golfer might present you with as a coach. You don't know who's going to walk through your door. You don't know what they're going to present you with. You need to have a toolbox, which is fairly vast, really. And you need to be able to dig deep and and figure out lots of different solutions. And that's what this system enables a coach to do very well. And and the longer, the more time you spend around it, the more you realize that's the case. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a system for playing golf and, and a system for teaching golf, which... I think is a, is a great thing to have. It's helped my coaching tremendously. Yeah. How long have you been coaching with it now? Well, I think I first got introduced to James and in, in around 2010. So 10, about 10 years. Mm. Mm. So, and I've been very fortunate, you know, fortunate in the sense that, you know, James was geographically close and then you take advantage of some things that come your way and, um, you know, I've helped Andy a lot in recent years while I was still in Europe, you know, delivering the teaching program, helping to kind of put together different events that we taught at and, and just hanging or being able to hang around someone like Andy um, as much as that has been a massive benefit to my personal development and my coaching, you know. Yeah, it is complicated in terms of learning the system if you're a coach. Um, and I think anything that's substantial and good is complicated um but then it's obviously up to the coach to uh, digest it and and uh, at an expert level display that to their their student in a way that's simple and effective yeah i think that's spot on i think a lot of people's if you're talking coaches first of all you know their exposure to stack until in the beginning will always obviously be a limited amount won't it no matter how much you try and read up and research on something once you finally kind of take a step into the training and and begin to learn it you're not going to understand it all in a day or two Um, that's just the nature of any worthwhile endeavor it takes time to develop your skills your knowledge and then your ability to translate that understanding into something useful on the lesson tee 
I certainly remember that from my point of view when I was first getting into this, it was like, wow, this is fantastic. I like the logic. I love the systematic approach, but standing on the lesson tee, turning that information into something useful for the golfer took time as well. It's, you know, and sometimes you don't have an answer for a student and that sort of sends you back to the bottom of the ladder again and you start working your way back through and asking better questions and figuring out what it is. But I think that's true of any teaching system that, that coaches adopt. You have to have a good um, a, a toolbox and, a, and, a, and, a, and an adequate number of answers for students, regardless of whatever you're subscribing to, whatever teaching system is in your head, hmm. you've got a limited number of answers. Um, and I guess, I've always wanted to make sure I've got enough answers to help someone in front of me. And whenever I've realized I don't have an answer, I'll go looking for it, you know, I'll figure it out mm. or someone will help me figure it out. Yeah. It helped me a lot. And especially for beginner golfers more than, more than anything. I, I actually realized I had a model that I used in my head, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, but I felt in the beginner, in the beginner, they didn't, don't necessarily, especially if they didn't come from any other sports and they were first, into a, into golf with without having maybe the coordination if i didn't have the play that was sort of coordinated enough my model you know seemed to be a little bit flawed that way but i felt with with stack and tilt using that methodology around beginners especially that didn't play sports before really yeah. helped their progression and a lot quicker for, for my my experience in my short time with it yeah i think that's i think that's pretty fair and, and something that you hear a lot because you know the basic movements, the very basic introduction to stack and tilt is just that. It's basic and simple. The ten words are simple. Um, that's one of the things that attracted me as well was the lowering that barrier to entry for a beginner player. You can have a golfer in the first lesson. I've certainly seen it countless times in my experience personally, and watching other coaches introduce beginners to the game. You can have a beginner hitting the ball. 50, 60, 70 yards up in the air in their first lesson um, off the grass. You know, we're not teeing this ball up Mm. four or five inches and and getting them to just hopefully make contact with one. You can actually get them to really make solid contact in the first lesson. And that's fantastic because it's that, yeah, that buzz of making good contact and watching the ball fly for a new golfer. It's like, that's the drug, isn't it? That's the bit that brings them back. Absolutely. And if they're standing on your lesson tee for the first hour and maybe the second hour, topping the ball and missing the ball, that's quite demoralizing. And, and you can lose someone in that time. You know, you haven't got a very, you haven't got an infinite num- amount of time to make an impression on a student. Mm. You need to make an impression quickly. Um, and I think adopt, adopting some of the principles of this system um would help any coach to do that in in the past i've had some that i've let go in in terms of not being able to get them quick enough and that's all part of coaching and learning Uh, but the satisfaction of getting someone from a to b to c and enjoying the game where they become members of golf clubs and enjoying their pastime as a golfer there is a bit of pressure on the golf coach. Um, and, and if you don't understand that as a golf coach, I don't think you care enough. Uh, and, and it's very important to understand that if you get this right early, you could give them 20, 30, 40 years of happiness in the game. Yeah, and I, a, I, I'd feel it, it really rests on me, that responsibility. Yeah, you're right. 
and you're right as well we don't get them all right we don't you know and that's just that's not just down to coaching and technical knowledge and ability that's just there's a human element to it all isn't there that sometimes things don't work out you know what i want to do is uh maybe confirm or dispel a few myths around stack and tilt because it is somewhat controversial and it feels like it's uh, controversial from people that really don't understand (laughs) what it is i feel like the controversy Bertie surrounds people that really haven't indulged themselves in what it is. And, uh, but some of these myths surround um, reverse pivoting. Uh, that's probably one of the bigger ones. Our second yeah. tells reverse pivot and reverse pivots no good. So I want you to confirm or deny or dispel this myth. Sure. It's funny. I was on a, I'm not sure if you follow Nick Taylor's YouTube channel. Nick works with me here in uh, Singapore. Yes. We were on his YouTube channel last night doing a doing a talk for an hour or so on Stack and Tilt, and this one came up. Like the reverse pivot question is a is a common one, so it's I'm glad you brought it up. But my first, I, my response to that question, first and foremost, is always what is that person descri- describing when they talk about a reverse pivot? Because I think different people have different connotations and, and understandings of what it means. Um, I usually find after talking to people that the majority of people fall into the idea that it's like you're moving your weight towards the target on the backswing and then away from the target on the downswing. That's what I understand it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if it's different, then it would have a different explanation. Stack and tilt certainly isn't that. Um, there's a weight shift in stack and tilt, but it's forwards, right? So the weight stays centered during the backswing and then it moves forward on the downswing if you're talking about the baseline model. And again, that's a huge conversation and myth to dispel because just because there's a model doesn't mean that everyone is taught to swing like the model. You don't get a golfer to come into you and say, right, I want to learn this swing. Or if they do as a coach, I'm the the first thing I'm saying to that person is that's not how this works. Okay. This works under the basis of how are you performing the fundamental tasks? So if there's a, if there's a deficiency, in their ball striking, we'll look at what piece is causing that and, and attack that piece first. Um, we will not start there and say, well, actually, you know, at P1 at setup, your right foot's only turned out 10 degrees and it needs to be turned out 20 degrees to conform to the model. I mean, that's just nonsense. And if anybody thinks that's what it is, I'd like to dispel that myth. And if anybody goes for a golf lesson and is told, by someone trying to teach them stack and tilt that that's what it is that's not correct either so it's it's a it's a system with multiple answers to help golfers it's not one swing but if you're talking about the model and understanding the, the baseline then it's not a reverse pivot in the sense that the weight moves like the head doesn't move towards the target on the backswing and then away from the target on the follow through it's just mm. not what it does um, yeah, that, that's the other myth. The other myth is when you get to the top of the swing, yeah, the weight hasn't moved back into your right foot. Now, I've seen a few models around and a few tour players that use the model and it, like anything, there's a discrepancy in exactly what people do. We're all human, we're all different. Um, but there is a slight shift of pressure into the back, back leg in, on most times. So, yeah, there that, is. that's, um, and, and as you said, there's no, there's no tilting this way. It, your head stays very centred. And there's mm-hmm. no hip sway this way. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's more of an extension of the hip, which we'll get into later. But 
Yeah, that, that's... Yeah, the pressure shift is an interesting one as well. It's mm. certainly in the golf coaching world. I think most amateurs don't care about mm. pressure or weight and, and some mm. coaches don't either, which is fine. I mean, the idea that the pressure moves to the right isn't something that Stack and Tilt have ever denied. If you go back and watch the, the 2.0 DVDs, which being eight or nine years old are still, in my opinion, some of the most detailed, most accurate kind of description of how a swing works. They use pressure plates in, in the, all of their filming of that. And at P3, which is halfway back on the backswing where the left arm's parallel, that's when the pressure is at its most to the right. And that's because the limbs, the joints, the two arms, which have a weight to them and mm. the club is the furthest from the target. Um, so there's a pressure shift for sure. Does teaching a, you know, a 25 handicapper who's, who's hitting six inches behind the ball every time he swings, it's telling him that there, oh, there is a little bit of a pressure shift. We've got to keep the pressure shift in there. I mean, does mm. that help him? I don't think so. Um, telling him to put his weight more forward and teaching him how to keep his arms straight and hit the ground after the ball. That's what I'm interested in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's priorities and it, there's a different set of priorities, I guess, depending on the level of the student, but at its core, the fundamentals are true for every level of golfer. I've helped tour players and I help beginners and I, the, the hierarchy in terms of the questions that you ask, certainly in my head, and how they're conforming to the fundamentals are the same, regardless of their ability. Yeah, and the 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 rise of YouTube and, and social media and all coaches jumping out with all their all their videos and things. Uh, there there is a lot of information on you know left arm straight, right arm straight. You know, it's not necessary to keep your arm straight. Um, so a lot of <laughs> a lot of things seems to go around in a circle. I feel um, it's a bit like fashion. You know, sometimes it's it's good. Sometimes it's, so. You know, at the fundamental core of it, if you want to hit the ground or the ball at the same point every time, your left arm acts as a radius. So for those listening, if you're bending that radius, you have to manipulate something at the ball. And that's that's your timing aspect, isn't it? So the, the more you have to try and time it, the less opportunity you have to probably hit the same spot every time. So uh, what we're talking about there is, is, is when you're beginning and wanting to hit that ground at the same point after the ball by, by keeping that radius locked in, it's going to give you the best opportunity to do so. Yeah, it's a, it's a foundation piece to start with. And the amount of that you'd give to someone would very much depend on you know, their specific issue. But I certainly think poorer golfers demonstrate more flexed arms and better golfers demonstrate more of a structured radius throughout the swing. Of course, the arms are bending, they're not dead straight. Um, you know, mm. But again, does telling, does telling Mr. 25 handicapper that actually, you know, although your left arm isn't completely straight, it needs to have like six degrees of flex in it. That, that conversation is ludicrous, right? They need to keep as much structure as possible. Mm. Um, and then maybe take a bit out if somebody does overdo it, which is the rare occasion that somebody might overdo that instruction. Um, but you know, again, the, the, the feel and real or, or understanding it well enough as a coach to then deliver it in a simple format to the golfer and mm. telling someone to keep their arms straight doesn't necessarily mean, um, they're dead straight throughout the whole swing, mm. but as a concept for a lot of golfers, I would say thinking about having your arms straight when you hit the ball is better than thinking about keeping them soft. 
Yeah, good as a, as a general rule. Uh, the next myth, you yep. need to fully convert to the method for it to work. Well, I sort of touched on that a little bit, I think, hopefully with the last answer when I said that it's not, it's not a method per se, it's really not. That's the misconception because there is a swing that's been outlined, it's been clearly defined, it's been explained. But you're using that as a reference. You're not using that to teach everyone to do that. So no is the short answer. You do not have to adopt the whole swing in order to benefit from the pieces. Yeah, I liken it to, Rob, Rob, I liken it to, I've just started learning the guitar. Uh And, you know, by myself on YouTube, like, you know, don't judge me. But when, when, I'm, when I'm watching the YouTube, um, same song, different person, different strum pattern, uh, maybe a different way to go about it, um, not exactly, but they sound, they come out sounding around the mark. So I think what you're trying to say is it, there is a limit, well, within, within the method, there is things you can do that won't inhabit your ability at the end of the day. So there yeah. is there there is a uh, a give and take around around it. It's it's not just need to be perfect here. You need to be perfect there. You need to be ten percent here. You, need to be, you know. So I liken it to maybe learning something like a guitar, where there's different ways to make the sound, but generally the sounds the same. It sounds like the song you're trying to play. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there, there is no need. Your question was, do you have to convert the whole way? The answer is no, because you can strike the ball better you can hit the ball further and you can hit the ball with more control by just adopting some of the some of the pieces and maybe it's just one piece you know for someone who's quite an accomplished player already but has this you know one pressing issue understanding one small piece maybe it's set up or maybe it impact or whatever that could transform their ball flight um i mean that's what andy and mike were doing on tour when they were teaching on tour they're not certainly helping players who are in the top whatever percent 0.1% of, of golfers in the world you're not rebuilding someone's swing on a, on a Wednesday afternoon before they're about to tear up you're giving them a piece of setup that will help to take a bit of hook out or help to put a bit of hook in or a bit of draw in whatever it happens to be so converting to the entire method is not necessary if you look at the players who've worked with Andy and Mike over the years you'll see that they don't all swing it the same and that's Unfortunately, one of the brushes, I guess, that continues to sort of get tarred, start stacking until it gets tarred with, is that concept that it's just one way and it's really not. You know, if, if people take one thing from this chat, I'd like them to take away the fact that it's not one way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about Andy and Mike, that's Andy Plummer and Mike Bennett. Who, Correct, Andy who, Plummer who, and Mike Bennett. Who come up with Stack and Tilt? Yeah. And did they, is an extension of the golfing machine, is, is that what it is? Or is it, um, ha, how is it uh, related to that book? Um, the, yeah, I mean, Andy was a golfing machine instructor for sure. Um, I guess in the time we've got here, I'm not sure I can go into the huge no. amount of detail, but it's a simplified, I would, I would describe it as a simplified modern day version of the yellow book, which is the golfing machine. Mm-hmm. it's a more practical use of it and it's i think also a more sophisticated um study of the swing which has more answers than the yellow book had but i mean I think the golfing machine was a, a fantastic um, publication given 
how old it is and, and sort of what was going on in those days. You didn't have all the high speed camera and, mm-hmm. and radar and track man and, you know, force plates and all that stuff. You know, this guy's worked out Homer Kelly who wrote the book has got a lot of things right a long time ago. And I think Andy gives a nice, Andy Plummer gives a nice speech usually during his presentations at training where he talks about building upon the people who've gone before you. Mm. And Andy would be the first person to uh, acknowledge how much help he's had from people in the game as he was growing up through the golfing machine, his exposure to it with a guy called Tom Tomasello. Um, That introduction led to him meeting Macca Grady, the time he spent with Macca Grady. Um, You know, there's, there's a story there that I think everybody has in their career, don't they? We've all been, we've all been exposed to different people and different things at different times that take us on a journey. And, you know, we're not responsible for creating any of this. And Andy would say the same to an extent. He's like, there's nothing really new under the sun. We're just presenting it in a, in a way that they believe is more practical mm. than some of the advice that had been out there for a very long time. I think you only got to go back 10 years and, and a lot of PGAs across the globe are still teaching sort of incorrect ball flight laws. Um, so, mm. Yeah, the, the golf instruction has come a long way and, and Andy and Mike love it or hate it. I think their legacy will live on for a long time because it's, it's, a, it's influenced thousands and thousands of golf instructors. Mm. Um, whether they wear the badge or not, most people that you might look at in modern day golf instruction as being at the top of their game are very much either been around it, influenced by it, have been instructors at one time or another. So I think that speaks volumes. Yeah, just to clarify, you're authorized instructor as well from Stack and Tilt. Just want to let people know that. Um, yes. The, so you, you talked about, you touched on technology. Um, has that just complemented or added to Stack and Tilt and just defining a little bit more about what it is that is Stack and Tilt? Yeah, from a ball flight point of view, it helps to evidence what you're saying. Um, controlling the curve building in the draw to the standard baseline shot because of where you place the ball position. The ball position is behind the center of the swing. It's more or less for, for the sake of simplicity for people listening is you put the ball more or less in the center of your stance to hit an iron shot. That by definition of the geometry of how we're built is behind the center of the swing. So there's an into out path built into the setup of every golf swing really. Um, so that's where we say the draw is built in and it's why the draw would be a more obvious shot to teach as a standard shot. I'm not saying for a second, you can't play golf hitting the ball from left to right. You definitely can. And stack and tilt would help you to hit it left to right if you wanted to, but the most obvious shot to hit because of the geometry and how we set up to the golf ball, the draw is built in. So you either hit that shot or if you choose to not hit that shot, of course, that's fine. There's variation on, on that setup alignment, but the draw is there if anyone so wants that to. W- that was one of the other myths, so you can't hit a fade with the, with the methods. So uh, how, how do you hit a fade then? You just, uh, is it a ball position thing? What is it you change in the method to hit a fade? You've got different options, but you know, you, it doesn't matter how you're swinging it. You hit a fade in the golfing world to, hit the, to make the ball curve from left to, left to right as a right-handed golfer. You need to have the face open to the path. Okay, that doesn't matter whether you're calling it 
stack and till, whatever you're calling it, right? It's, that's ball flight. So you need to have the faith open to the path. Um, when you set up, if as described, you have the golf ball behind the center, there's somewhat of an into out path built in relative to the target. So if you wanted to keep everything the same and make the ball curve from left to right, you could just open the club face at setup and have it so that the club face was now aligned to the right of your swing path. The problem with that particular description would be that if you didn't change where you aimed your body, that ball would now start to the right of your target and curve further to the right. So you could make that adjustment, but you'd also have to kind of pick up your entire setup and aim it to the left of the target. Mm. Uh, that's one way to do it. That's Sounds pretty I, simple. I like yeah, I think it's, I mean, at its core, the concept of that geometry is very simple. Mm -hmm. And in reality, we swing the club head and the sweet spot around our body and we have to try and get back to the ball. And there's lots of permutations that go on during that mm -hmm. swing for sure. sure. But you can definitely fade the ball. It's, it's for sure you can fade it. It's not a draw only swing. Mm. Oh, that's good to hear. And one of my other favorite ones that I've heard um, is you can't hit driver very long or high. Yeah. What do you think I about mean, that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, again, you bring up one of those myths that does the rounds and it's clearly in people's psyche because it does come up time and time again. It's a shame. Do you think you it's are, because people think that it, you're on the left-hand side, you can't get any power from your right-hand side? Is that where it comes from? I think it's a combination of that. Yeah. Mm. I think that's part of it. I think people think having your weight on your front foot means it's a steep swing, which is not correct. Um, those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand at all. Um, so that's a misconception. That's often the piece that people get wrong when, if you hear someone say to you, I've, I've tried doing this with my irons and I did really well, but I tried it with the driver and I didn't do so well. My immediate reaction and thought process when I hear someone say that is that they've sort of misunderstood the weight forward piece but it's helped them with an iron because it's actually increased their angle of attack. It's helped them to hit down, whereas maybe before they weren't. So they've, they've benefited from that point of view. But if they've continued that theory with the driver, that's not going to help them. Um, having your weight on your left side doesn't equal steep. That's the first point I'd make. Um, to hit the ball far, you don't need to shift your weight. Okay, that's another point I'd make. You can... And it is a piece that some would use to add power to their swing. But I think in the hierarchy of pieces I would choose in terms of their importance, shifting the weight would be way down the list. Okay. It wouldn't be in my top 10 of things that help to create power. So yes, it can help. Of course, you look, you know, the arguments that are thrown at you are things like, you know, the long drive guys that, um, and his name escapes me now, but that, dude with the long hair who rocks his feet backwards and forwards. Oh, yeah. Is that Kyle? Kyle Berkshire? Yeah, Kyle. Yeah. So, yeah, it's awesome to watch, right? Mm. He's hitting it, off a, <clears throat> hitting it off a tee that's this high. Okay. And, and he's got to hit a, a grid <clears throat> or a fairway that's about, I don't know how, how wide that thing is, but it's wide. And they get 10 chances to do it. And for the most part, they don't always hit that big, wide target. No, no. What, what do you reckon his percentage of... <laughs> <laughs> 30 30 yard fairways is 10 percent yeah, exactly. maybe <laughs> exactly. so this is why i think coming back to the fundamentals it helps to define the game of golf in the beginning 
what do you need to do to be successful? You need to hit it far enough. Mm. Golf is not about hitting the ball as far as you possibly can with no consideration for the other pieces. Mm. Um, that's, that's lost on a lot of people. It's lost on a lot of golf instructors from what I see on, on uh, internet forums and, and social media mm. because the modern, the modern day science that people are trying to throw at golf is really based around increasing club head speed and that's purely because that's the easiest thing for them to study. So this club head speed is the lowest hanging fruit. Let's study it. Let's talk about how pressure shifts, weight shifts, center of pressures, center of masses. Let's talk about how that influences ball, uh, club speed. That's all well and good, but just hitting it further or just swinging faster doesn't necessarily help someone to get better. Yeah, and the stack and tilt uh, methodology in terms of talking about power and speed uh what is it that if if i was to come to you and say look i'm i'm playing second tier tours uh, i want to hit the ball further how would you implement that in my game well very much depend on how you're doing it right now so where where Absolutely. do we start from kind of what you bring to the table if you weren't hitting it far enough i would try and help you to understand where that came from and that would be just through a study of your swing and having a look at what you do but in the first instance, you know, the first piece that creates power is depth to the golf swing, getting the hands far enough and the sweet spot far enough around you and behind you because we play, we play golf on a tilted angle. So that's the very first thing that brings power to the stroke. Swinging so you, on a, you're talking about the further you can swing, that'll be the first lever in terms well, of power. There would be a turning piece that definitely helps that. So rotation would be part of it for sure. Um, but swinging on that inclined plane, you know, it, it, one of the pictures that does the rounds on the internet, and we've had it, we had it last week because of the, the, the match or whatever it was called, the, the charity game with Rory, yes. Dustin, Matt Wolf, and um, Rory, uh, Ricky. Ricky, yeah. And the yeah, other one's happening thing, now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. the Tiger Mickelson one. Yeah, that's right. But the, 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 the this thing happens and pops up every six months or twelve months. There'll be a picture of four or five golfers at the top of their backswings with these vastly different looking backswings under the guise that everyone's different so nothing matters kind of thing you know just go mm. just go out there and keep swinging your swing and you know how many coaches would have ruined Jim Furyk if he'd have come to them for a lesson well first of all I think it's it's a nonsensical argument first of all just bringing up the fact that the swings are different doesn't actually help anybody doesn't give any degree of detail to why they're different or if they're so different and it doesn't matter why are you even bring that up that would be where i'd start but secondly i mean look at the swing at p5 or p6 which for those listening as downswing positions and you'll start to see a lot more commonalities than, than you will differences and that's because every good golfer has to get that sweet spot of the club back onto some sort of functional arc or plane on the downswing there is nobody, <clears throat> excuse me, there's nobody swinging with the shaft coming down through their head mm. on the downswing who's any good at the game. Yep. Jim Furyk might take it up with the shaft going up vertically through his head, but he doesn't bring it down like that. There's a reason he doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, there's a reason he does not do that. There is a reason that golfers do not do that if they're good. Um, yeah, you got to so hit it out that, and not through the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, 
pointing out that picture and those type of pictures um, often, I guess, are thrown around as in, around the idea that all golfers are different. Look at, look at how unique we all are. The idea that we're all snowflakes and we're all um, individual. Yes, of course we are. That's, I'm not debating that for a second. But the idea that then that would create no rules, no structure, no, no basic template in which to work from is, is ludicrous. Um, because if you didn't have a system in your mind of, of what to do, you'd never be able to help anybody. You know, right. you wouldn't know where to start. You wouldn't, you'd look at Mrs. Smith who comes in for a lesson and she's topping the ball or she's missing the ball. And if you have no system in your mind of how the swing works, where do you even start? Yeah. That would be my answer to these coaches who say, well, I teach the golfer in front of me. That's mm -hmm. great. I hope everybody's teaching the golfer in front of them. I think we all do that. Um, <laughs> If we're not teaching the golfer in front of us, who are we teaching? And then if you want to push that conversation onto the next paragraph and say, well, why are you making that recommendation? Everybody, every golf coach would be trying to do their best job for sure. And then off the back of that um, motivation to help people, they're going to be making a recommendation based on their knowledge, their current knowledge, their experience of what's worked before. So everyone has a system in their mind of how this works. Mm. They just don't, necessarily write it down um which is fine not you not everybody has to write it down but don't pretend you don't have a system of teaching that would be disingenuous i think yeah yeah i i agree um in terms of mrs smith coming to you beginner golfer you've learned you've taught her how to strike the ball first and she's getting pretty consistent the second part we're talking about is the power how would you increase that in her um we, we started talking about yeah, getting the levers as long and as wide as possible. Um, from there, obviously making it efficient as well. What, how would you go about making that power so she can hit it up near the green somewhere? Um, yeah, basic stuff without being too specific because you don't know what an individual is doing, but basic stuff would certainly be to allow golfers to turn their hips and, and change their knee flex. I think that's one in the backswing to help increase the turns. I think that that piece was one of the pieces that made Stack and Tilt initially stand out for being controversial. You don't have to do a lot of digging around of watching golf swings to see that that's actually quite commonplace and has been for, for years throughout history of golfers changing their knee flex, turning their hips. So that would be just a simple way of helping someone to increase their range of motion safely by utilizing their joints the way that they've designed to move extending and flexing the knees, turning the pelvis, increasing the range of motion. Um, so that would certainly be a, an obvious starting point to help somebody who's not hitting the ball very far. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's basic starting point. Where where you go from there with someone would you know, depend an awful lot on how they're loading the, the levers, the wrists, the arms. There's, that's quite a complex puzzle that it's difficult to get into on a general general basis. Yeah. I had uh, the Aussie long drive champ I spoke to a couple of weeks back and he spoke about the length of swing. So he, I'm talking, I've asked him, you know, how you can try and increase your swing speed to get up to the world champ guys to compete with them. And it, he's talking about all about the lever length. Okay. Um, and also he talked about using the ground. Now 
I'm not sure uh, whether, you know, he knows that because he's, you know, for himself that it works or he's, he's hearing it from a coach. But how do you feel about using the ground as a term for power? Yeah, I mean, we're all standing on the ground and that can be used as a way to generate more speed. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a valid um, way to help people swing faster. Um, definitely. But he did also say that he can't afford to not hit the middle of, of the club. Otherwise, it's a waste. So yeah. <laughs> I think but this is what I, we're talking about before. <laughs> I agree with that more for, them, for most golfers. Again, yeah. I think your filter that you look at this through, and obviously I'm looking at it through my own filter, is very much influenced by the environment in which you teach and the, and the majority of the golfers, the level of the golfers that you work with as a, as a, as a, a sort of average. Mm. And it's going to be far more important for Mr. Jones to hit the centre of the club face with his driver nine times out of ten than it is for him to swing four miles an hour faster. Yeah, and absolutely. And the other misconception is going to your right side, back to your left side. I think for, for increasing power, that's just going to make it a lot more inefficient. The, your, your, as we talked about before, the club at its, you know, low point is going to be different every time you're going to strike the club face different every time and it's actually not good for your body as well but we won't to go into that but in terms of stack and tilt uh i feel uh you can keep the the center by extending in the right side and and that's something i learned the most from from seeing andy was you know australian uh golf teaching has really taught in the past about getting to your right side Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're, I was always in, fl- I'm still in flexion. Um, and we talk about flexion being the, the spine sort of that, at that angle on your backswing for a right hand. sorry if you're watching on YouTube, uh, sorry, listening on the, <laughs> the podcast, but your, your spine hasn't extended, um, to the point where you're actually level and, and your head stayed still and you're centered to, to go for it. So uh, by moving in flexion and, and trying to feel like you're getting power, it's just an inefficient move. And that's something that I was never taught as a player, a, as a coach at seminars. I was never talked about extending and tilting on the backswing. It was always about turning. Yeah. I heard turning, 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 turning. It was never about extending and tilting. And when you look at the spine, the, the best players in the world, the best ball strikers do all three. Without a doubt. I mean, every golfer is doing all three to an extent. They're just doing different amounts. So that's a really good point, I think, you raised, Jake, because that, for me, looking at what Andy and Mike have done for the game, that will be their legacy in the sense that nobody was speaking about tilting and extending and flexing and how the spine moves in three dimensions before they came along. That was the bit that they really described and helped me as a coach, you as a coach, and what you were just I'm trying to describe there brilliantly was the extension flexion pieces. And as a coach, if you can see that you can, I mean, we, we use motion measurement now here at golf tech um, and we're measuring what's happening in 3d, but I can see a lot of those pieces just in 2d because of what I learned from Andy and what to look for on the camera first, like in terms of where that upper center is moving during the swing mm. Mm. Um, loss of inclination would be different tilting amounts and, that head moving from left to right would be different rates of extension and flexion. Knowing that 
is, I think, yeah, a vital component to, to understanding how golfers move and, and being able to then help them because those movements will generally lead to certain patterns of, of path and, and ball striking and things like that. So being able to identify those patterns is the secret. Yeah, that, that's can, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's cool on two levels. Uh, one level is, as I said before, the technology is complementing what those guys have talked about in two day for a long time before this technology came through. Yeah. And the other thing, the coaches can can utilize their camera in two D without having to purchase that three D equipment. Yeah. Yeah, I was asked, um, a golf instructor friend of mine from Belgium sent me a message the other day. He's doing this study and he asked, uh, he, get, he listed things A, B, C, D. He said, in your, in your opinion, like I'm doing a study, I want to know what pros think are the most important. And A was you know, camera to, have, to be able to film the swing. I think B was like launch monitor track man. C was 3D like measurements and four was force plates, like place them in order. And honestly, I, as long as I've got my phone with me and I can film a swing, I think I can you know, really help somebody. Yeah, um, that's, a, the that's other, a great The story. other things are just complementary and they sort of measure, but they're, not, they're definitely not necessary for a good golf lesson. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think technology is a pretty cool thing. Uh, it's great to find out some information about the swing. I mean, I'm a bit of a swing junkie too, don't get me wrong. Um, but I know in my, in my history of coaching and what I've learned, um, that is one of many, many aspects of getting that player to play their best golf. And uh, that's what I, I want to bring that into now. The next part is, you know, stack and tilt is a methodology that coaches can use um, for, for, their, for their teaching. But it's not just about using swing to, you know, to coach. So talk, talk on, you know, you're in an indoor facility and uh, you're, you're obviously coaching swings. But how do you then interpret that into playing on the course? And, and how do you share that with your, with your clients? Yeah, we have access to an outdoor facility as well. We definitely recognize the importance of, of getting outside. Golf is played outside. Um, there are pros and cons to an indoor facility, I think. The, but you can definitely do a lot of good work in a controlled environment where you're able to you know, dig down into the data, look at, look at what the ball's doing, look at what the club's doing, look at what the body's doing. So people can practice. I think one of the biggest things we, we offer here is the ability for golfers to um, practice in an environment where they can really make some gains rather than maybe just going to the driving range and, and hitting balls, you know, being able to film your swing as you can here during your practice sessions is important because you want that feedback to be able to, to know that you're doing what you were asked to do. I think I would say the biggest struggle that most golf coaches are certainly in my previous life of teaching the game. I think, You'd, you'd, always, you'd always like to think that you helped someone during a session. Um, of course, there's always the odd one. But let's say you've helped someone hit the ball better, reduce their slice, whatever it might be. But when they come back, they maybe haven't retained as much as you'd like them to or any of it for that matter. And that can be for a number of reasons. Some people just don't practice. But let's say someone does try to put the work in. If they're not able to film and look at what they do, then they're really just fumbling around in the dark. And so it becomes difficult from a, an amateur golfer's point of view to make significant, substantial change without supervised practice or good feedback. So mm -hmm. for me, that's what the indoor environment here allows us to do. And, and it helps players to 
make technical changes faster. Um, on the subject of helping them score better, I think also what they can do is sort of track their shot patterns more accurately. Um, they can use the technology to see the sort of tendencies they have, the groupings they have for their different clubs. That can help them to make better decisions on the course, more realistic decisions in terms of um, aiming spots, more, more realistic decisions in terms of carry distances. They can use their own golf ball in the centre to actually get the true distance they hit their ball rather than just a, you know, a range ball or trying to guess by maybe lasering a target on the driving range. So I think there's a lot of practical applications to practicing indoors that you can then transfer outside. Um, short game and putting is a big part of what we do here as well. I'm a massive geek when it comes to putting. I'm a huge putting fanatic and fan in terms of teaching. Um, so we teach, you know, we teach mechanics, we teach uh, green reading through the Aimpoint system. Um, we teach uh, targeting and routine and, and just all the pieces that a golfer, again, would need to help them to, to, to putt better and, and take fewer strokes. And then, as I said, we do have access to outdoor space and a golf course. So as part of the process, you take someone to the course and see what they're doing. I think, again, I said earlier, you sort of see things through your own filter and, and your own environment influences sort of what you do. Um, I mean, in Singapore, we have some limitations in terms of the weather. It's ridiculously hot. So having an indoor yeah. facility to practice is, is a massive advantage, I think. Access to golf courses is difficult because the limitation in terms of number of golf courses here is, is, a, is a limitation that we have just in terms of, of capacity. Getting people out onto a golf course is difficult. So in an ideal world, that would be different for me. I'd like to see people on the golf course more often than I do. Um, but it's just not feasible in this environment. I love the idea of supervised, um, um, you know, coaching, viewing their students practice. Supervising practice is, is I think the next big thing in coaching. Uh, I think I've seen a few guys start to do that um, around the place. I love that idea. Not only is it uh, a lot more fun for, for the student to come out and, and do it with, other people in, in the same category as them learning the game, a lot more yeah. fun, but it is honestly uh, not wasting any time when you're practicing because so many people go out there and practice and, and sort of waste their time or waste their energy if they're actually trying to get better because they might be just doing the wrong things. And so I think supervised practice is, is the next sort of thing to do. I think it's a great, great thing for a lot of people and it, it will almost certainly make it more cost effective for people as well. Won't it? If, Absolutely. You can figure a program where people can practice together, pay a monthly subscription to something. And that's a great model for the coach and for the student. Everyone wins then. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, you know, I want to get on to some tour players that have used it uh, as well. And I noticed that Andy and, and Mike worked with several PJ tour players. I'll just list a few. Uh, Aaron Badley, Mike Weir, Brad Faxon, Troy Madison, Charlie Wee, Steve Alkington, Dean Wilson, JJ Henry, and Grant Waite. So some of those guys have come and gone over the time, but um, even though they've left, they, they still don't have a bad thing to say about the, the time they've spent with Andy and Mike. And, and what I've noticed the most when, when they've talked about it was how simple it was. And I think, again, going back to the, the myths of it around Stack and Tilt being so, you know, 
um, complicated. And so, you know, that's something that uh, is, is actually not true. It's, it's very simple, especially when it comes from the guys that know so much about it. So they've got the ability to produce that simplicity. But I found that fascinating that they find it simple. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think, again, it comes down to that delivery level, like what you tell the person in front of you. You're not dumping all of your knowledge on that player. You're just looking at it as, a, as an expert coach. You're making a decision and then you're figuring out the best way to get that message across to the player. And that can definitely be simple. I think to the point of simplicity, the 10 words that you, I think you alluded to a little bit earlier and so touched on. So, yeah, it's simplified in 10 words. Weight forward, shoulder down, hands in, arm straight and turn hips tuck hips or, or yeah, push or the hips forward. Hips. Yeah. It's that is for me kind of a great way for people to just get introduced to the system without feeling overwhelmed. Um, so yeah, the simplicity of that is, is genius really just to give people a starting point. Mm-hmm. And very often, very often when I was coaching back in Portugal and, and making pitches for people at the end of their lessons, and sending them their feedback, the top of the picture that I would make them would, would often just be two of those 10 words or maybe four of those 10 words. So the lesson is diluted down to just a two word or a four word summary. Even though during the lesson you may have talked about, I mean, if you're discussing shoulder down and the concept of the tilting, you may have gone into some detail during the lesson and helping a player enable them to do that, maybe through the changing of the knee flex or having a conversation about about something to do with the anatomy and how they move. But at the end of it, you would want it to try and be just a, so you're, so my left shoulder moves down. Yeah, that's the feel, shoulder down. Okay, mm-hmm. great, let's practice that. And, and so that's how a, a big piece of information can kind of be condensed into a, into a digestible piece for the student. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to go over uh, those in more detail um, soon. Uh, I, I want to well, talk, yeah, the, so with, with the guys like Grant Waite, for instance, um, you know, he's won a tour, uh, a tour event um, under the tuition as well. Aaron Badley won twice. I think he nearly, is that the 2007, he nearly won a major. He was sort of back nine. He was leading um, before, yeah. unfortunately for, for Aussie fans, he didn't quite get it done. Uh, Mike Weir, I think made top 20 in the world going to stack until after being in the wilderness for, for a, a few years in between that yeah. master's victory. So there's been a lot of success coming out of that. Um, so what, what do you attribute to, to that success? What, what do you think um, these guys have, have done so well under the tutelage? Because I think the information's good um, and good information should lead to improvement as, a, as a, just a general kind of continuation there's a logic there that if you get the right information and you apply it it should make a difference of course there's other factors in in the world and in the human being that that may may stop that from always being the case but that would be my most basic answer is the information was good that leads to confidence in the player as far as each individual is concerned the others they would talk about their experience and i think you've alluded to the fact that no one really has a bad word to say which is good tantamount or testament to to their to the relationship they had and mm. the fact that Andy and Mike helped helped everybody um players leave coaches it's just what happens right mm. it's just 
the nature of the beast. The wheel keeps turning and players leave all coaches across the tour. You know, mm. best people considered to be the leading coaches on tour, people like Butch Harmon and uh, David Ledbetter lose players through their career. It's not a, necessarily a slight on their coaching, mm. is it? It's, it's, it's just the reality of the, the evolution of a player, the evolution of a relationship, golfers looking for another set of eyes. You know, it's, it's a complex puzzle. It's not as simple as saying, well, this guy's a great teacher, go and see him, he's going to make you better. Mm. Um, but the fact that they all improved under the tutelage of Mike and Andy, I think, speaks volumes as well. Um, so, yeah, I think anyone who criticises their record with tour players needs to go and look at the facts, not listen to the uh, sort of the, the haters, as it were. Yeah, well, as you talked about the information, uh, they, they have answers for everything, and I, that gives the player a lot of confidence. So, uh, you know, tour players are a little bit fickle, um, a little bit emotional at times. And, and it's, a, it's a, t- I mean, it's a tough gig. I mean, it's, you're working for yourself. There's a lot of money on the line. It costs a lot of money. Um, it's an emotional sport. And, you know, players always want to feel like they want to get better. And they'll look for any out. They'll look for any out to get it. And sometimes, yeah, the coach is on the chopping block for that reason. It's just, yeah, chasing that, that dream, I guess. Yeah, I think the driving range is a, driving range of a tour event can probably be quite a, an interesting place to be and people speak and you hear such and such and caddies mm. probably speak and if their players struggling after having a two or three week run of poor form people talk and people are looking i think we're always trying to get better aren't we to sometimes to the detriment a golfer will say that you know they make a move and they don't necessarily improve and there's mm. certainly stories throughout golfing history where players have tried to remodel their swing change what they do having been successful and actually not managed to find that form again so yeah it's a really tough call to make when it's your living you want to maximize your your winning and and earning potential but sometimes that decision can go wrong so who's your favorite sort of swing on tour who do you like looking at who's your bottle do you like to uh, use a lot um i guess modern swings there's a lot i like um there's a couple that just popped into my head when you asked the question rory i think yeah, it's a lot of like in Rory's swing. Um, I think it's improved a lot over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, Tommy Fleetwood has a nice move. Um, Justin Rose, I thought, had made a lot of progress as well in recent years with his swing. So there's, there's a few there that I really kind of like watching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there'd be three that I'd pick out as being, being good. What particular about them? Did you like the flow, that the power, the the efficiency? What do you like about them? Yeah, I think Rory's in full flow with the driver. I think Rory's pretty spe- spectacular to watch. Mm. Um, Fleetwood, I kind of like the the structure of his swing, the you know, the centeredness, the tilts, the arms, the finish. There's a lot of what looks very efficient there, and I think that just looks good to my eye. So it sort of fits in with what I. I like to see and similar with Rose really I think his swings evolved significantly over the years and and maybe a year or so ago it was really good Um, Mm. I've noticed I was actually watched him here in Singapore in January when he was over for the um, Singapore Open and filmed a bit and yeah there's bits now that probably aren't quite as nice as I'd like to see but again he's still 
or was in that instance anyway performing pretty well so you know you don't want to get lost too lost in the swing like there's so much more to a player's performance than just their swing and when we're talking at that level there's you know fine lines and fine margins right i think the 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 golf swing conversation you have to remember who you're kind of talking about and the detail in which you might critique a Justin Rose swing and the things that you have a conversation with the coach about maybe pick out one or two pieces you're not quite so happy with doesn't mean that if Justin Rose walked into you for a lesson you'd, you'd necessarily kind of try and re, re, redo everything do you know what I mean yeah, yeah. so just from a just from an aesthetic point of view I just like the flow of those swings and the geometry sits fits my eye nicely the tilting the structure yeah. well justin rose is an interesting case study because he's had the same coach through the whole time so you, you you see his progression i'm pretty sure he's got the same coach to this day right i th- do not know but i think so yeah yeah um so that's interesting itself like as you said he's made good progress i think he used to even say to himself he used to flip down the bottom a little bit he used to get his hands involved come out high around his head and over time he's really um he exited left and controlled the club face rotation, which is, as you alluded to before, pretty cool to watch. A lot more tilt in it. And and he has he lost that a little bit? Has he gone back to a little bit more of yeah, that? Yeah, a couple of things I filmed in on the course in January where it was a bit more like that, and he seemed to be struggling to control the driver. Um, yeah, like you say, it is interesting that the evolution isn't continuously improving. Yeah, you sort of hit bumps in the mm. road. Mm. Um, and maybe that's for a number of reasons. Maybe he's stopped practicing a particular thing that was helping him. Maybe he has a different belief about direction to go, or maybe it's nothing to do with any of those things. And he's just spent more time working on his putting and maybe mm. not as much time on here. And you just don't know. You just don't know. But golf swings that don't look how I like them to look can still be extremely functional. Um, yeah. So yeah, my hat's off to Justin Rose and his improvement over the years. And I just like watching him because he's a Englishman and he's a, seems like a really nice guy as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the guys I like to listen to when he's talking uh, or he has a bit of fun out there as well, which is, is good to watch. So yeah. no, I agree. Justin, Justin, I, I hope he wins more and he gets back out there and starts performing again. I think he, I think he just left his manufacturing agreement. Yeah. Too, I saw that this week. Yeah. He's like that Homna relationship, which is about, just over 12 months so it'll be interesting to see where he goes um there's yeah, another example isn't it the fickleness of the tour because i think he started like a house on fire with them and so you, you know it did. <laughs> so, it did. so okay it, it can't be the equipment <laughs> so then okay well oh that's come into my life it's now associated with bad i gotta get rid of it yeah and homna's a brand in asia that probably it's a bit more exposure for so you know, we were trying to get them to put it in here and, and have access to it because I think there's a bit more demand. But that was interesting, as you say, you know, started great with it. Now, 12 months down the line, it's sort of gone sour. Um, there's, there's another example of the complexity of the puzzle that is a PGA Tour player. And in his example, one of the best on in the world still falls mm. foul potentially of equipment changes or mentally might just start questioning it questioning the equipment change even if it's not the equipment change and he's looking for a a change to make in his game that gives him a bit of a, a boost you know so 
It's, That's why we love and hate the game, don't we? <laughs> well, it's never ending, right? It's fascinating that people like that work with the coach, as you say, all the time, and yet their swings are always evolving, you know? So long-term, I think it's one of the things Golf Tech has really well, does really well, is that consistent, sequential process of lessons and practice that they encourage their students to do. Like make golf something that you do regularly. And, and both through that repetition of good coaching, good practice, you make significant or substantial change over a period of time. Um, and that's really the way that anyone gets better at anything, isn't it? Yeah, and you've got to keep on to it. Because as you said, I think we have tendencies, just, just like as a kid growing up, you, you hit a lot of balls as a youngster. Whether it's in education, whether it's in golf, you have a tendency. And I feel that's the same with a golf swing. So unless yeah. you on top of that and if that tendency is the thing that's you know, your kryptonite so to speak like we talked about justin rose flipping um yeah. you've got to keep on to it otherwise um it can creep back in as, as you mentioned because under pressure or if you're not confident enough you tend to do something that's way back in that in that mind and brain and, and it comes out yeah yeah like you say it's the reason we love it and the reason we hate it is it's so difficult when we're struggling and it feels so effortless when we're doing well and it's mm. searching for that flow and that freedom that you have when the game's going well that is the carrot that everyone's constantly chasing. Yeah, I, I remember when I used to play a lot, it, I remember thinking if I had a bad day, I couldn't get, wait to get out of tomorrow because it's a new day, new opportunities, new swing feel I could try and get. <laughs> it, it's just, it was an exciting time. So it, that's, I couldn't, even, even if I hit a good or hit a bad or played bad, I couldn't wait for the next round. Um, to see what I could do or what, what could happen. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a cool game that way. It is. It is. I think wrapping, coming full circle really and coming back around to the idea of a, you know, having a system and under, understanding of how it all fits together, you are absolutely less likely to get knocked off track if you can see the, the logic and the, the, the steps that you're working towards in order to achieve something. I think certainly the younger golfer and a sort of aspiring professional who didn't take a lot of coaching and didn't really know how the swing worked to your point about tinkering i do think that yeah you know, i would try anything over a period of time if i was struggling i'd try this and i'd try this and mm. i'd try this before you know it you're off down some rabbit hole that you can't get out of and had some pretty low moments as well as as, as high moments in terms of playing where even as an expert golfer you don't feel like you can keep it on the planet or on the golf course, which is is not a great place to be either. So no. I think that forged a lot of my desire as a coach to understand how it works better, just so that I could hopefully stop people having to sort of go through that trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, kind of um, figure it out on their own methodology, if you like, versus having some structure. I wanted to finish, mate. Um, with the 10 words, it's basically yeah. trying to give an online little introduction to a, maybe a player that's just starting or someone who wants to improve. And I think these, these 10 words are a pretty cool starting point. Um, so part of the stack until obviously the stack means wait forward, I'm assuming. So that's the first two words, wait forward. And that's what the stack is. The stack would refer to the centeredness of the backswing, I think. Okay. But the weight is moving forward progressively on the downswing and, and when we say weight simply 
refers to the fact that when you make contact with the ball, you want most of your weight to be on your forward leg. And that would be, again, uniformly demonstrated by every good player. There's nobody playing the game to any decent level who's got their weight on their back foot when they're hitting the ball. So weight forward being the first two words is just trying to help somebody understand that. Specifically going into a little bit more detail, it's weight forward is really describing the pelvis and how the hips are moving forwards. So one of the misconceptions sometimes, or one of the pieces that gets overdone or misunderstood on the backswing, it's like the head and everything moving forwards. Okay, that's not what it is. It's a very centered pivot from a, from a front on view. And then from down the line, pelvis, uh, sorry, from the downswing, the pelvis would move forwards yeah. while the upper center would stay centered. So it's a weight forward swing with the hips. So more of a, it's like a slide, a little slide. Yeah, definitely. To change that left tilt mm. into a right tilt as you swing through, there's a hip slide, which again, is there's slide in every good player. Some mm. players can do too much of it. Some players do less of it. That's the, that's the piece that you could you know, change and, and use to influence someone's path or someone's um, mm. contact for sure. So we're not say, I'm not saying there has to be an exact amount, but there is an exact amount in the model if you wanted to maintain your centers and maintain your inclination to the ground. So the slide exists, and that's important that people do know that. You so, should not be trying to not slide. So at impact, you know, 70, 80% on your front leg is ideal. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, the second one is shoulder down. So that's referring to obviously back backswing. And, and follow through. It's the tilt element. It's the fact that we play golf on a tilted angle. Mm-hmm. So on the back swing, your shoulders are going to tilt to the left. And on the follow through, your shoulders would tilt to the right. So shoulder down is a basic mm-hmm. describing the tilt. You maintain your inclination to the ground. So as a golfer, when you set up in some kind of forward bend mm-hmm. and you have this inclination with your spine, let's call it that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would say it's your posture but more accurately, it would be describing how the tilt helps you to maintain your inclination to the ground. And changing the tilt as it does throughout the entire swing, you have to blend that with the right amount of extension, flexion and rotation to maintain that inclination. So that's okay. the hypothesis. That right. is the hypothesis of stack and tilt. You asked mm-hmm. me earlier, kind of what is it? It's a swing that from the front view has a centered axis or pivot with the upper center and the lower center moving forward. And from down the line, it may, it's a swing where you maintain your inclination to the ground. And that's important, the inclination for hitting the ball on a descending blow. Yeah, you would say, well, <clears throat> you would also, I would argue that it's a more repeatable um, motion rather than changing your inclination throughout the swing, which would be like bobbing up and down or coming out of your posture. I would say that that's, more complicated mm-hmm. difficult to do and again just on the shoulder down question or point going back to my um photograph of all those players at p4 with jim furick <clears throat> matt kuchar and everybody else in between if you wanted to pick out the commonalities in those pictures that would actually help golfers rather than just tell them that everybody's different one of the most common pieces there is that they're all tilted to the left with their shoulders, their hips, and the knees have changed flex. 
So if you wanted to start looking at things that you could tell people to do that were more similar and a commonality of great players, I would say the shoulder down piece defines golf. It's the playing on a tilted angle. That's how we, we have to hit the ball that's down there on the ground. So yeah. you have to tilt to the ground. That defines the game of golf. Yeah, I would challenge people that see those um, pictures to cut out their hands, the players' hands and arms, and, and actually have a look at how dissimilar they are or similar they are. Yeah. So I think you'll find that there, there's a lot more similarities. Yeah, and I think, again, it, uh, just going back to that picture, pointing out that everybody's different isn't helping anybody. I mean, what's it telling poor old Mr. Mr. Brown this time, right? We're going to keep working our way through <laughs> names. Yeah, he's, he's sitting there watching that telecast or that social media post or whatever it happens to be. And the coach is saying, or the commentator saying, look at all these swings. Aren't they so different? Just how unique everybody is. And this guy, and this guy is represented by thousands and thousands of golfers who are struggling, sitting there watching this or reading this and thinking to himself, well, yeah, but my swing, my loopy swing or my funky looking swing doesn't work. I, I'm a 28 handicapper and I keep taking lessons or I'm trying to get better. And yet this thing that you're telling me is so unique about me is my snowflake principle is making me a 28 handicapper. It's not making me a good golfer. So that argument, again, sort of gets me going and, and you can probably tell it kind of uh, I get a little bit animated when it comes to talking about that because I just think it's not helping golfers and as coaches yes that's right undoubtedly at our core every single person is trying to help the person in front of them get better so just telling someone that swings are unique is kind of pointless in my opinion well that's right and, and when as a coach you're looking through the impact area and you know if 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 the impact area is out then you got to work on it don't you so yeah. Um, we're, we're looking for a commonality in the impact zone um, and, and all good players that like just before impact, around impact, very, very similar. Yeah, I think strikers. if you showed those four players and you took a picture of them at you know, P6 where the shaft's parallel to the ground on the downswing and posted that picture, then you'd start to see a lot more similarities. In fact, there was a really nice video that Nick Clearwater did, who's the vice president of teaching for Golf Tech globally, based in Denver. And Nick did a, a really nice um, sort of a video analysis of those four swings and talked about you know, why they're different at P4 and the top of the backswing and, and, and then started to move through the swing. And to look at really things that golfers could take from that analysis would be useful for them so if anyone is interested in that that's on um, golf tech's youtube channel that's a nice conversation that he did with um cordy walker which i think summarizes that that picture and kind of gives it some backs it up with some actual interesting information that some golfers could find useful and yeah very very cool very cool all right well that explains that very well the hands in is the next two words just again, the, 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 describing the fact that we play on this tilted angle. So um, there needs to be some depth to the hand path at some point. Now, of course, there are plenty of golfers who've played the game whose hand path going back is more straight. Um, but as I touched on earlier, they don't, it's not straight when they're swinging back into the ball. So hands in is the concept that you have to have some depth to the hand path 
and you know, again, if you were starting someone from scratch or you were trying to help someone who struggled, particularly slicers, you know, I see a lot of slicers who have these sort of very vertical hand paths, telling someone to turn their hands in or swing their hands inwards or around them is the concept of um, swinging on a, on a tilted angle. And that would be the same for the follow through as well. So the hands moving the right amount in versus swinging out too far or swinging across too much. So hands in is really just like a reference for the, mm. the arc of the swing. And I wouldn't know any coach on the planet that would get Jim Furyk as a kid and teach him what he did. So, you know, obviously there's a point where students or, or kids that play the game have got a repeatable motion that they've hit ball after ball after ball without being told anything. But I can't imagine a coach actually just prescribing that to a new player. No, I think I mean, you know, almost once you've got a player in front of you who's so competent that their ball striking is that good, you're really looking at fundamental number three, which is that co controlling the curve piece, which is the bit that varies from week to week, mostly is the bit that varies from week to week on, on tour. You know, no one on tour is hitting it fat all of a sudden. They don't just start hitting six inches behind the ball and they don't just start mm. topping the ball, right? So you're not dealing with fundamental number one with a tour player. You've got a player in front of you already who is competent at fundamental number one. Mm. There's a threshold on tour of, of distance, club head speed. And if they're on tour, they you know, they certainly meet that threshold. That doesn't mean to say that they wouldn't do better you know, to hit it more distance, because clearly that is a massive advantage on tour. But the, the, you're dealing with a Jim Furyk example. You're helping him manage his face-to-path relationship, helping him control the, the distance he hits his balls and the dispersion of, that, of those shots. Um, that's something that you could do if you implemented the system. You wouldn't, you wouldn't start them from scratch. As I said, you wouldn't start telling Jim Furyk to swing his hands in mm. on the backswing. Um, hopefully. <laughs> Depends how many balls he's got, I guess. <laughs> I don't think he's got another 10 years to work on it, though. Um, oh, the next one. Arm straight. So I think we alluded to that a little bit earlier. So that's just referring to the radius yeah, of the swing. Exactly. Exactly. It's just giving a general instruction that keeping the arms straight and swing having some sort of structure and radius to it is more beneficial than, than whenever these arms start to flex and you start changing that radius. I think that's definitely something I see among poor golfers struggling to maintain that and, and better players demonstrate the opposite. They demonstrate straighter arms. So it's not arms straight in the sense that you literally keep them completely straight, but it's the concept of it giving the structure to the, and the, and the consistency to the radius and, and ultimately the contact. Mm. And to help keep that radius, I think the last one is tuck hips. So uh, just go into the tuck hip part as well. That's really the talking about the extension on the follow through. So pushing, pushing the hips forward this way. Yeah and creating the extension in the spine. Um, What's important about that? Well, it's a power piece for sure. So it definitely helps with creating more speed. Um, one of the studies that Golf Tech have done using their motion measurement was on that finish position with the shoulder bend. We call it shoulder bend at, at Golf Tech. And the sensor that's on the top of the spine there would measure how much you're bent forwards or backwards. And there was a very direct um, connection and correlation between handicap and amount of forward bend and back bend. So 
the backbend seen in elite players PGA Tour at the end of the swing would be 32 degrees back. Um, and in the poorest players, it would be like zero. Um, All right. And the more forward you stay flexed with your upper body, the more that uh, encourages your arms to bend on the way through. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really important piece. The trouble with that piece, though, it doesn't, you can't teach someone to extend and tuck their hips on the follow through if they've got their weight too far back because they will top the ball. You have to have the bottom of the swing far enough forwards by virtue of having the, the hips far enough forwards. You have to have the low point far enough forwards before you can start to extend up and on the follow through. If you have the weight back and you try to extend, yet you can, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons so many golfers struggle with that follow through is because their weight's back. The only way they can hit the ball with any degree of function is to stay in forward bend as they swing through right. because they've got the weight too far back to reach the ball. They have to start swinging across and staying in forward bend and their follow through of a higher handicap golfer starts to look a lot more like this. Whereas an elite goal who gets the weight forwards and then from there can push up, use the ground to your point about, you know, using the ground for power and, and start extending the body backwards, which is like a, a catapult sort of motion. Yeah, cool. So just uh, to finish with, with, uh, with this, I, wa I wanted you to give just one little drill, if you could, for anyone listening, struggling with their ball striking, is there one little drill you could get them to do over the next sort of month to help their ball striking? If they're outside, it's very easy to go to grass. If you can go to grass and scratch a line in the grass, okay, just scratch a line with your foot or with your club and put that line in the center of your stance, address the line with, the, with your club head. So you start with your, line, start with your club head on the line and then make swings where you try to hit the ground target side of that line right. that would be a, a very simple drill where you could actually start to recognize where your low point is occurring so as you as you implement that drill you'll start to recognize am i hitting the ground at all am i hitting the ground every time i swing or am i missing it sometimes and if i do hit the ground where do i hit it and how consistent and tight is that spot on the ground or how spread out is it because for me, that's actually a, almost a, a very direct um, measure of someone's handicap. You can almost have a pretty good guess at, at someone's golfing ability by their ability to do or not do that drill successfully. So if you or I stood there, and we don't practice, or I don't practice, I don't know about you, Jake, but I don't practice. But I, could stand there, <laughs> I could stand there and scratch a line on the ground and I could stand there all day and never hit behind the line. And I would always hit target side of the line and the dispersion of the divot or the contact point on the ground would be very, very small. That helps to define me as a decent player. Right? Mm. I can make good contact, fundamental number one. Yeah. Um, the poorest player, if you gave them that drill, um, you asked them to make 10 swings, they'd have 10 very different looking contacts some would hit the ground, some wouldn't. They'd hit the most back on the ground. Then they'd have a variety of kind of divots between that backward point and the line. And, and the poorest players would never hit in front of the line. They would never do it. So just start with that drill to get a benchmark of where you're actually at. And if you recognize a deficiency there, 
that's maybe something you'd want to talk to your coach about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where do we find you then? So you're, you're in Singapore and uh, where's golf tech over there? Yeah, we're right in the center of, uh, of the city in uh, Raffles place. So, uh, but you know, we're, we can't operate until I think July is looking like when we're going to be back. So we've got another month, unfortunately. So if anybody would like some online help, they can go to my website, which is uh, robcheneygolf.com. There's some um, online lesson stuff there that I'd be happy to help with over the next few weeks. Keep me out of mischief and uh, point you in the right direction if you're looking to improve your swing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would recommend uh, that people follow that up, follow the information on Stack and Tilt. Uh, there's obviously a website as well, isn't there? A Stack and Tilt website people can... Um, there is, yeah, there is. And that has an instructor locator on it as well. So you may find in your part of the world someone close to you. Um, but as I just said, if not, there's a lot of um, instructors offering online tuition um, so that you can access it via that website. Or if you want to come direct to me, you can access it via mine. Look, uh, thanks so much for your time, Rob. I, 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 got, I got a lot out of it and I'm sure people listening and viewing will as well. So I uh, really appreciate your time. Good luck in lockdown. Hopefully you get back out there soon and start coaching people. Thanks, Jake. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, yeah, stay safe and take care. And hopefully I'll see you in Oz in the not too distant future. Absolutely. Come down. I'd love to have you down here, mate, in Melbourne. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob.